for the team's a bunch of badasses if you know what I mean They're coming out of the sky, out of the sea And on land, gonna take it to the enemy Lock it low, boys Time to explode, boys Make sure you get home, boys They got your back, the pride of the fleets The bright swinging frogmen Of the U.T.T. Hey folks, welcome back to Mark Devine's Unbeal Mind podcast. Today we have a solo cast, meaning I won't be having any guests on. I'll be pretty much interviewing myself, so uh, be able to riff on some things that are interesting to me. I really, actually really like doing these. It's, it's really cool for me to be able to just talk about some things that I think would be um, helpful and you know to, to uh, dive into the Unbeal Mind philosophy and that type of thing. And today I have three topics. Um, one is a recent event that I attended uh, with the prison fellowship. So I want to talk about prison system. It's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, the second is um, my old sea daddy, Admiral McRaven's recent article about civil military relations. I think that's very interesting and very important. So we're going to touch on that. And then the meat and potatoes will be about focus. How do we focus on the right things for the right amount of time and make sure that we're really, really doing the right things for the right reasons? At any rate, before I really dig in, I do want to mention that um, I super appreciate everyone's support for the Kokoro Yoga book launch. Uh, we launched um, two weeks ago or a week ago. I don't know exactly when. Uh, we hit number one on Amazon where it continues to the, this day in its category, I think, with health and fitness. And um, we also had over a couple thousand people sign up for the Kokoro Yoga 30-Day Challenge. So if you're one of them, thanks very much. Stick with it. Hope you've done your, your work today. Uh, also, another milestone we hit this week was a million downloads on this podcast. So that's pretty freaking cool. A million downloads. Anyways, I'm not sure what else that means, but it's just pretty cool. All right, enough of the public service announcements. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, invited to Boston to um, do a role play and, and a speech with a group called the Warden Exchange, which is part of the Prison Fellowship. I guess the prison fellowship's been around for over 40 years. You can Google them. And they go into prisons and they work with prisoners to try to improve their quality of life. Uh, it's a faith-based organization, so I imagine they run Bible studies and distribute Bibles and all that. At any rate, you know, the Warden Exchange was about bringing wardens together who are basically the CEOs of these, you know, these different prisons, most of which were state and federal, and, you know, trying to share best practices and to um, expose them to ideas on how to transform both themselves and the prisons to have a better effect on, you know, what the mission of the prison system is, which is hopefully to uh, reform uh, the prisoners so that they can get back in and be productive members of society. I learned how challenging that is, though, by these wardens. It's interesting. You know, wonder who is advocating for the prisoners. And it's not uh, it's not our political establishment. Um, there's really no unions for them. Right. They're, you know, maybe the ACLU. But it might surprise you to note that the, the primary advocate for prisoners in quality of life and their rights and all that are the actual, uh, those closest to them in the system. And that's the wardens and their key staff. I thought that was fascinating. And they really understand what works and what doesn't work. And most of what is forced on them by the bureaucratic system and politicians doesn't work. And they're, they're usually one-dimensional solutions that are made to make the, the perpetrator, you know, look quote unquote tough on crime. And the other thing that I really learned is just how 
how wrong the whole system is or how broken the whole system for incarceration is and how many people we put behind bars who, you know, really would have been much better off dealing with their infraction in some other way, that the cost to society would have been far less. I mean, it's unreal how much it costs to incarcerate a human being. And we have privatized prisons who are incentivized to keep people behind bars. And, you know, the whole system basically is designed to break people further, to punish people further when, you know, the reality is, you know, ethically and morally, the punishment was supposed to be to go to prison, to have, you know, to have your freedom removed, and that the prison is meant not to punish you further, of course, unless you really screw up. But, you know, unfortunately, these prisons are, are causing people to get worse, and it's becoming like it's multiplying and aggravating the punishment, and we're not able to return the prisoners to be productive members of society, which is really increasing the burden and the cost. So the whole system is upside down and needs to be broken. And these 45 leading wardens understand it and they're really advocating for transformation. And so um, I don't know how we're going to be able to support them, but I offered to donate an Unbeatable Mind book to every prison that the fellowship could get it into. And they said they're into over a thousand prisons. So I got the first batch of a hundred off to Pedro Moreno, who leads the Warden Exchange and is kind of a force behind this effort so that we can get Unbeeline Book into the prison libraries. And, you know, we'll see. Hopefully that will at least maybe make his hand into a few people's or make his way into a few people's hands. And you never know. But, um, man, it was fascinating. And we toured a prison. I'll, I'll, I'll move on in a moment. But I toured a prison that was a medium security prison. I don't know about you, but I've never been in prison. And I really hope to never go back, honestly. Um, it was fascinating. Uh, this place outside of Boston had 1,600 prisoners. Uh, 65% of them were lifers. Imagine that. And so I got to meet people and shake their hand who are in prison for life. We'll never see the outside of that facility. And they were decent people. It was really interesting. And they, you know, one guy I met was an army vet, serves a couple tours in Afghanistan. And he looked at me and goes, I hit a speed bump. <laughs> You know, so I don't know what it was probably drugs or something like that. Uh, and he, he was just, you know, eight years into his his time. God, what a shame. At any rate, moving on. Great article came out this week uh, by my sea daddy from SEAL Team 3 and Naval Special Warfare Group 1, uh, William McRaven, who went on to lead all special ops as a four-star admiral. Some of you might remember this, uh, the commencement speech he gave the University of Austin a couple of years ago, which was fantastic the make your bed speech. Anyways, McRaven's probably one of the smartest SEALs I know. And um, what he, he made a really good point. So I encourage you to Google the article. We posted it at NavySEAL.com on our Facebook. But he made this point that, you know, his father told him uh, about MacArthur and how MacArthur, the reason, you know, this brilliant army general was essentially reprimanded and demoted and forced to retire was because the MacArthur uh, didn't respect the civilian leadership at the time, at the end of the Korean War, you know, so he took it upon himself to invade China. And of course, that didn't work. And, you know, he was basically fired. And so how important it is to have this kind of fine balance between civil military relations. And, you know, typically in the past, it was one of mutual respect. And the civilian leadership would, you know, have to rein in the military. And the military leadership, you know, served at the, you know, at the pleasure of the civilian leadership, but the civilian leadership, you know, really, really uh, uh, respected them and allowed the military to do what it does best, obviously. Well, it's interesting how that's been eroding. And I've noticed this and it it really kind of disgusted me as well, just seeing how our political establishment treats respected military leaders when they're brought in 
for uh, some sort of interrogation, you know, like, I mean, watching um, budget type discussions, you know, simple things like that, all the way down to remember uh, Abu Ghraib or, you know, being grilled on ISIS in Syria and these types of things. And this uh, civilian leadership, meaning Congress, you know, Congress and Senate, really use it as a bully pulpit, you know, for their own political agendas. And they crap, excuse the words, crap all over the military uh, leaders. And we're talking about, you know, colonels, you know, captains, colonels, admirals, and generals. And it's really disgusting to see our elected politicians have so little understanding of what, you know, the sacrifice these military men and women have made and, the, you know, how, how respected, you know, they are by the rest of us to, to achieve this rank. Now, of course, people screw up and sometimes there's someone who makes their rank, you know, through the Peter principle doesn't belong there. But the recent example that McRaven gives of uh, Naval Special Warfare Command uh, two-star Admiral Brian Losey is really telling. I mean, Brian, I've never met Brian, but I know a lot of guys who really, really respect him in the SEALs. And he was just a SEAL SEAL and had a phenomenal career, like literally unblemished career. Uh, except that one one of his commands was to take over SOC Africa, I think it was, the Special Oper- Operations Command for Africa, which was a relatively new organization. And it was based in Stuttgart, Germany, I think, which is a pretty cushy place to be. And, of course, now Africa was heating up, the Horn of Africa, and we needed boots on the ground. And so he was assigned over there to kind of like bring it to a war footing, which he did. It, it was his mission. And so he was able to, to spin it up into a deployment status. And that didn't sit well with some of the folks who had been there for a while and were kind of homesteading there. And because they didn't want to go to combat. They liked things the way they were. They didn't want to go to Africa, even though that was their job. At any rate, you know, I wasn't there. So, I'm you know, I'm reading between the lines. But... Uh, through the Whistleblower Act, a few people anonymously kind of really dinged uh, Losey. And unfortunately, um, you know, that followed him through his career. But, you know, the Navy exonerated him. The IG exonerated him. Uh, Naval Special Warfare exonerated him. And a couple times it came up. But these people persisted. And, you know, it, it came to the point where it, it, it finally reared its head recently where uh, a few uh, members of Congress literally were upholding or withholding their support for, I think it was a budget deal. And um, I could be wrong in that. I have to reread the article, but they were withholding their support for some major legislation just because of this issue. And, you know, for their own political careers, they took down Admiral Losey and he was forced to resign and he lost his, you know, his commission for a second star. So he got demoted. And, you know, it, that's a horrible way to treat you know, a Navy SEAL who spent his life in service to this country in the most dangerous places in the world and with, you know, incalculable contribution to the security of our country to have a few, you know, really just insane people, you know, who are looking out for their own interests and not yours and mine, take someone like that down. It's really sad. And it's not just those people. I mean, there's a whole generation in the elite political establishment that has no understanding and respect for the military. And this is a new thing, at least in the history of our country. So uh, the point he makes is where do we go from here? Stand by, right? It it makes perfect sense if there's no respect from the military to the civil, right? And there's clear paths to deal with that, like with MacArthur. But, you know, this is a rare situation to see it being flipped in the other way and to have no understanding of what these men and women do, the sacrifices we make, and in our importance for being on the vanguard of protecting this country from ISIS and everything, 
And, you know, if it flips and we don't get the respect and it's, you know, it becomes a political volatile hot potato to even try to, you know, be part of a, the officer corps in the military, then, then you're going to uh, eviscerate, you know, one of our core assets as a country. So something to pay attention to. I'll try to keep my eye on as well. I think this is, that's a little scary to me. At any rate, um, I don't have any, any recommendations or, you know, I'm not calling for any action on this. It's just really interesting and something we should pay attention to so that we're, um, our situational awareness is firmly looking in the right areas. Hey, you know, yoga is for warriors. Maybe you've heard that my new book, Kokoro Yoga, is out. I'm totally stoked about this book. It's been over a year in the making. So go to warrioryoga.com to buy the book. Because if you do, I'll give you a couple free things, such as the first chapter of the book, as well as a video for recovery. So prepare your body, mind, and spirit on your quest to self-mastery by checking out Kokoro Yoga. Go to warrioryoga.com. hoo Now, the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about here is focus. I just finished a really cool book called Essentialism by a guy named McCowan. Uh, definitely worth a read if you guys have the time. And it's about focusing. Now, as you, if you followed me at Unveil Mind, you know that you know, pretty much like everything he, he said in the book, I could have written. I'm not saying that from, a, um, you know, from an arrogant standpoint, but it's because it's stuff we've talked about with Unveil Mind, with decluttering and focusing and understanding you know, our, your purpose so you can really align with it and the KISS principle. And it was really, co- really cool to read it you know, from his perspective. And he's got some great uh, anecdotes, and it's just a good read to support uh, what we already know to be true, is that we really need to do what Stephen Covey used to say is, the main thing is for us to keep the main thing the main thing. I love that. So the main thing is for us to keep our main thing the main thing, right? So that what that means is, how do we f- focus on the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, so we can always answer the question, why? Why are we doing this? And why is this happening to me? So, but it's, it's challenging. I mean, it really does, like at the, at the broadest level, it requires us to be super clear about what I call our, our personal ethos. And that is, what is it that we're on this planet to do? Where are we supposed to point our compass? What's our purpose in life? How are we going to activate that purpose through our one or main thing? And in order to know our purpose, we have to be deeply clear about what, we, what we're passionate about because you're not going to fulfill your purpose very well in a manner that you're not passionate about. And of course, it needs to be aligned with your principles. So those three P's I call passion, purpose, and principles are your ethos. And the ethos is your guiding light. Every day when you wake up and you do your morning routine and you check in with your ethos, it's like, um, it's like pulling out your compass on an orienteering track and just resetting your position so that you know which way to walk. And so that's kind of at the broadest level. But then, of course, you know, decisions come along. And he makes this point, McEwen does anyways, and I I parrot this, is that we've got so many distractions in our world, so many things coming at us, and we tend to make, you know, decisions where we say yes far too often. You know, even in my own life, I'm dealing with this right now where I'm I'm learning to say um, no in service to a bigger yes. And one of my friends named uh, Sean, who's been coaching me on this, he comes from uh, the integral world. Um, he's provided me a number of questions so that I can ask these questions when an opportunity comes along, an opportunity such as a speaking engagement or a business opportunity or uh, anything of that nature, right? So 
what he has me do is ask some good questions so that I can ensure that I'm saying no in service to a, a larger yes. Ultimately, you know, what McEwen says is we want to be able to call our, um, our focus, uh, call the items that we're focusing on so that we're doing less and those things that we're doing, we're doing better. So he goes, do less, but better. I love that. I'm going to use it, but um, I didn't create that. So do less, better. Uh, that comes from McEwen. Anyways, Sean's um, questions he has me ask, and these have been really helpful already, is uh, when an opportunity comes along and you're seriously considering it. And so first off, rather, you know, if this happens over the phone or in person, always say, give them a neutral response back. Okay, so this is my advice to you. If someone says, hey, do you, even if it's as simple as do you want to go out to dinner or go to the, you know, go to the Padres game or, you know, I've got a business opportunity or, you know, would you do this for me? Like, uh, you know, read my book and write a testimonial or something. I always say, let me look into that. I'm not sure what my schedule is. Uh, I might or might not have time. So that'd be one opportunity. But give a neutral response sort of like that. Or, hmm, I'll think about that. Don't say yes or no. You know, I've gotten in trouble where I've said yes and then I've gotten back to a quiet space and, you know, tap into my sacred silence. And I'm, I'm, I think about it and I'm like, you know what, there's no way I should be doing that. And then I have to go back and say no. And then people give me crap for changing my mind. And I think changing your mind is good because it means you've thought about something because usually the first reactive answer, you know, isn't always the right one. So at, at any rate, learn to uh, take a couple breaths. I call that the three breaths rule. So as soon as someone, something comes in, it might be an email, it might be a phone call, it might be a, you might be hit up in the hall at your office or even by a family member, maybe even by your, your son or daughter and just breathe into that and then give a neutral response and say, I'll get back to it. You know, unless of course it's just so clear right away that it's a yes or a no, but a lot of times it's not that clear. So then ask questions such as what Sean provided me. So here's what I'm, and you can come up with your own because these are not like, you know, the point is to ask good questions, right? There's nothing magical about these particular questions. First one is, does this opportunity support me and keep me in balance? In parentheses, balance with my family, balance with my training, balance with my business. That's a good one, okay? You know, because how many times have we done things that really are for other people and not they don't support your work-life balance, they don't support even your own business, right? And you end up getting tangled in them and then you, you regret it, right? And so you don't want to have these, be dragging around these kettlebells of uh, regret in the form of commitments. The second one is, does this opportunity further my why? Meaning, can I... Can I tie it to my why for seal fit or build mind? Can I tie it to my why for my training or my family or my investment, you know, uh, paradigms? So does this, does this support, you know, key why? If it doesn't, then why do it? Does this opportunity hit the sweet spot of my unique ability, my uniqueness as a person? Is it, you know, in the sweet spot of what people or what the world wants me to do? Or is it something that I'm just kind of tangentially interested in? or, you know, marginally uh, good at. And I can think of tons of instances where I've said no to things because it's just not something I'm good or passionate about or, you know, something that I really should be doing. There's there's people that are better at it than me to do that kind of thing. All right. Is this opportunity rare and exciting? Is this something that you say, heck yeah, or is it something you say, hmm, maybe? And if it's a maybe, you should just say no because – you know, there's something else out there. Remember, say no in service to that heck yeah, yes, it's right around the corner. And guess what? If you say yes to too many things that you should say no for when that heck yes comes along, you're not going to have the time or the energy or the resources to do it. You want to create the space for those awesome opportunities to come to you. 
And then the one, the timing issue, could, could I do this some other time? Is now the right time? Does it have to be now? That's a great one to ask. You might recall the FITS model from The Way of the Seal if you've read that. It, you know, the, the, ask your question when you're looking at a target. Does it fit me and my talents? How important is it? What's the return on investment? Is the timing right? And is it, does it meet the KISS principle? So that kind of fits the, the, the FITS model. And then um, here's another one. Will I regret not doing this opportunity? Will I regret not doing this? So there's kind of taking the flip side. And um, again, we don't, want to re- we don't want to regret taking opportunities that we shouldn't be taking. And we don't want to regret uh, letting opportunities slide by that we should be taking. Uh, how about can someone else do this in my stead? Right? Can, I, can I pass this opportunity on? I've done this so many times. You know, someone's at, people ask me to participate in a book project or a video project. And I'm like, you know what? This is a great idea, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it on to somebody else. In fact, the way the seal came from my friend Stu Smith passing an opportunity on to me because he didn't feel he was the right person to write a book on mental toughness, but he thought of me and he passed, he passed the agent on to me. And guess what? You know, that turned into the perfect project for me because I was already writing a version of that. And so I'm, I really honor Stu for doing that. He's a great guy. Is this the right person or organization to partner with? What if the opportunity is solid? But the person presenting it to you or the organization, you know, that you're, you're being offered to partner with aren't the right organizations. Maybe there's some ethical issue or there's just not a good character fit. So, you know, that's important to ask those questions. Uh, and then one more way to kind of look at the past and to get, gain insight on what you should and should not say yes to is look, look at your past history and ask yourself, what have I said yes to that I now regret? I love that. And so I look, I've used this all the time. I look back and I'm like, yeah, I regret that one. And oh yeah, I regret that one. And oh yeah, I regret that one. And so we can use that um, and keep a kind of a tally of those and, and use them to kind of balance off or, or to compare them to current or future opportunities so that you can avoid making those same mistakes over. And because, you know, sometimes in the moment, we're not thinking of it. We don't see the connection and we just repeat these patterns over and over. We have these blind spots and, you know, these blind spots keep nipping us until we get the lesson. And the lesson comes through awareness. I remember when I worked at Naval Special Warfare Group 1, this is back in the mid-2000s, my um, boss there was a Commodore, they called a Commodore, and he was a Navy captain, and his name was Jim O'Connell. Well, Jim used to say, hey, when you're making decisions in the field, he was talking about, but this applied to anywhere for any of his commanders, because he commanded the SEAL team, uh, West Coast SEAL teams, he goes, Consider it whether it would pass a New York Times test. And what he meant by that was, would would you like to read about this situation that you're about to embark upon, this decision you're about to make? Would you like to read about it as an expose of something that went wrong in the New York Times? I mean, what's the worst case scenario that would happen so that if you read about it in the New York Times in the following week, you know, uh, and you could see the consequences front page, you know, would you still take this action? That's pretty cool, right? How, you know, what could go wrong so that you would be just aghast to see it, you know, displayed uh, in the front page? You know, what is there loss to your reputation? You know, when I learned, went to the prison fellowship thing, you know, what I kept hearing is that everybody in this country, including you and I, are literally a decision away from those prison walls and primarily with our tax code. I mean, who knows how many tax laws we break every year because we don't have a freaking clue what they are. 
and they, they're they're spitting out new laws faster than my clock is ticking over right now, and um, it's impossible to keep up with them all, right? And so, and they you know they change them all the time, and who knows, you know? And, and heaven forbid if you're really wealthy or really popular, and someone puts you in their crosshairs, you know? So, you know, it's important to make decisions that are going to protect you and your family, even from you know, these random occurrences that could uh, trip you up. So always be taking that three breaths and asking yourself those questions I asked earlier. You know, those are more for like opportunities that, that bind you in, into commitments, but also, you know, simple things like, um, you know, do you want to invest in this or, you know, um, the people that you choose to do your um, bidding when it comes to things like taxes and investing and stuff like that. It's really important to slow down, simplify things you know, clear your plate, spend time in silence and use tools like the FITS test, F-I-T-S, and the KISS principle so that you're making good decisions and you can sleep well at night. One last tool that I really, really enjoy, and, and there's a good chance you've heard of it, but uh, also a good chance that you don't use it. And that's Eisenhower's decision matrix. This is so cool. And I encourage you to just uh, Google Eisenhower decision matrix um, you'll find a couple different versions of it. You know, we're going to start using this in our inner circle program along with the different planning tools we have because it's just a super easy way to um, organize your projects and tasks so you're make, to make sure that you're focused on the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And what Eisenhower did is he he broke down his tasks into four quadrants. And he labeled that the – so if you if you draw a box and split it into four, along the top line – you're going to write urgent on, uh, over the left column and not urgent over the right column. And then for the rows, the top row going across is going to be important and the bottom row going across is going to be not important. So now you've got four quadrants, the urgent and important, the not urgent and important, the urgent and not important, and the not urgent and not important, right? And so, you know, when you look at this, um, what would be urgent and important? Well, Things that are urgent and important are like crises or deadlines or, you know, a real problem that needs to be solved. And so you're going to list those things that are urgent and important. And you're going to do those first because you, you know, pretty much have to. Then underneath that, you list the things that are urgent but not important. Now, this is where most people spend a lot of time here and actually a lot of time in that other bottom quadrant, which is not important, not urgent. The things that go into urgent but not important are like constantly checking your email in fact, most email traffic, most texts, uh, most of that type of stuff are urgent but not important. Most meetings are urgent and not important. So when you uh, start to think about how you organize your day, how much time you spend on email, consider just not responding to email or um, not responding to most chain emails until the whole uh, situation kind of resolves itself. I've started to do that. And it's amazing if you just don't have to be the first one to jump in on the on a response to a, a mass email or to a chain email, just wait to see how it plays out. And, and chances are, you know, either the answer will be uh, resolved or, you know, your participation becomes irrelevant anyways, unless you, you know, and if you're a decision maker, you want to wait until everything's flushed out. So you just wait, right? Don't, you don't have to be heard, you know, first all the time. And when it comes to meetings, consider that most meetings don't really result in any productive behavior and are a waste of time, frankly, in, in big organizations. So really get very disciplined about your meetings and consider, you know, you know, the Pareto principle using, you know, using that to analyze what 20% of the meetings you attend lead to 80% of the results for you and for your company or whatever your organization is. 
and just cut out those other meetings. Just don't go, right? Even if you're supposed to go, just don't go. And people will eventually stop counting on you to be in there. You just ask what you missed. I mean, there's, there may be you know, political ramifications for that. Consider you know, what makes sense for you. But there's a good chance that you don't need to go to all the meetings that you go to. And there's a huge time suck. So cut out email or most email. Cut out uh, most meetings. And um, really think about what you can delegate and offload to other people to get, you know, to get out of doing the urgent and not important. And then the, the, ur- the not urgent and not important, that bottom right quadrant, that's things like surfing the web, social, you know, spending time on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and, then, you know, unless you have a really good business reason for spending time there, then, then you know, it's usually a waste of time. I, I say pretty much any TV like any TV, unless you're a first responder in a jock or something and need to see what's going on with all the latest updates, then you don't need TV. It's a complete waste of time. Just cut that out. All the trivial stuff, video, you know, uh, video games, TV, and, and also like shopping and eating for pleasure. <laughs> I hate to say it. it's okay to eat for pleasure, but most of the time, most people waste far more time than they need to shopping and eating for pleasure. So that, those go in that are not, are not important. You shouldn't even be doing those tasks at all unless you're very confident that you're doing the right thing, the right time for the right reasons, 90% of the time. So what does that mean is that you really need to spend your time in the first quadrant, which is urgent and important, and carve out time for the second quadrant, which is not urgent but important. And so what's in the second quadrant, which I haven't even talked about yet, really is the juice of this whole focus discussion. So I'll kind of wrap it up here. So when we want to, how do you learn to focus? Well, you learn how to plan properly on what to focus on. So it's spending time in silence. So planning silence, planning your daily training, your routine for silence, your box breathing and concentration training, planning retreats. And those retreats can have a weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual rhythm to them. So weekly, you know, weekly retreat might be to spend a few hours on a Saturday morning alone or, you know, walking in the woods with your family or something like that. And so it's time for your mind to settle down and for you to have time to reflect on what's important and what you should be doing and whether to take that project or, you know, allow that person in your life, that type of thing. Um, and so maybe a longer retreat every quarter and then every year an even longer one. And that's money. I tell you what, so you plan that in and that will um, serve you well. Trust me. Uh, also, you know, just your daily weekly planning, like block time to do your planning so that you can always call the list. You know, you're doing your Pareto analysis, 80-20, keeping things simple, calling your list, and taking things off that you don't really want or need to do, delegating the things that are not important but seem urgent, uh, taking care or finding a way to take care of the things that are urgent and important, but making sure you're not sacrificing uh, those things that are really important but not urgent. And that includes also, I might add, uh, quality relationship time, quality time with your family, your team, and your good friends. All right. So there you have it. Try to ensure that your main thing is to keep your main thing the main thing. Thank you, Dr. Covey, for that. The late Dr. Covey. And uh, focus on the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And watch your performance and your success skyrocket. Thank you very much for your time today. I hope you found this to be uh, valuable. And um, we'll probably be back to an interview format next week. Got lots of cool guests lined up. And then um, I'll, I'll try to do this solo cast maybe once a month or, you know, month and a half. And uh, so until I talk to you next time, thanks for your support. Train hard, stay focused. Booyah. Lock and load, boys. Time to explode, boys.
It's all you get home, boy. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.A. Oh.